Did you notice the sunset this evening? I hope you did. <clears throat> because the meditation practice is really about the sensitivity that that allows when we take it in. I was listening to a Dharma talk by someone, a monk who was living in Australia, I think, and a layperson asked him what he would do if the sunset, uh, with a particularly beautiful sunset, and he said, uh, I turn my back on it. I thought, (laughs) 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 he he and I are teaching two very different (laughs) practices. because we're, we're not turning our back on anything here, are we? And when you see the beauty of the sunset, it brings you to the level of the sensitivity of that appreciation and the rawness of the heart, which allows that full embrace of what you see and the softness and tenderness that comes from that. And then you can also see from that full frontal view, any need to have it reoccur tomorrow and the disappointment that may arise if it does not. So you see the beauty, the sensitivity, the appreciation, and the lingering trace and need to prolong it. Hmm? So you see the pain, you see the joy, and you can choose from that full frontal approach to life what you would like to release yourself from and what you would like to encourage. But if you turn your back, you see nothing and you walk away with neither the appreciation nor the experience of seeing how pain arises. So I like to teach the full frontal approach. Hmm? The full frontal approach, denying nothing And I hope this week together has allowed you to really get a a sense of where we lose ourselves, but also where we gain sure footing, where we find our love to rest, and where we find ourselves torturing our, our minds. And the understanding of how those two can lead to very different and focused lives. So I would like to take you back to the beginning of things tonight to see how these two approaches separate out from one another. And so I'd like to take you to a point in time 3.8 billion years ago when something absolutely amazing occurred. It was the moment in which life started on Earth. And it happened, which is the most amazing fact, I think, in science. It happened once. I used to think that it happened in every sort of bubbling, gooey lagoon 
in backwater pond, you know, wherever the volcanic sulfuric acid was sufficient and all the mixtures of chemicals and then life started springing forth. No, it happened once. And the way they know that is that genetically they can trace that to every living thing, both plant and animals. So that the grass has 50% of the genetic makeup of human beings. And then as you get more specific in the animal realm, you find the great apes having something like 98% of the genetic makeup of human beings. Now what happened in that moment? Because something amazing occurred. Really? Consciousness took form. What became, what was innate, became animated. And then, whatever that single cell protozoa, amoeba looking thing was, who knows, but over 3.8 billion years it differentiated time and time again. As it separated and divided into one and two and four and six, each of those offspring sought different pools and different, and then different environmental effects occurred within and on each of those different adaptations. And so they evolved according to the conditions that they needed to evolve in order to survive whatever environment they were then facing. And one of those adaptations led to us, and another led to grass. Now, it's very interesting to me, very interesting to me, because we're, we're an interesting species and in all of that, that one of the adaptations that occurred was that we began to have the capacity for subjective experience. That was an adaptation that occurred. I was in Seattle recently and they had an exhibition of Lucy. Lucy is a three million year old hominid who uh, was about three and a half feet tall, stood upright, erect, not much more human-like than ape-like, though covered with hair, and couldn't quite see her walking down the streets of Amherst. Or, but it's nevertheless small in uh, facial development and had a lot of um, chimp ape-like features, but clearly evolving towards some other animal or species other than the great apes. And I thought, wow, that's really, I wonder if they, that three million years ago, if they had the subjective, they had the capacities to know themselves as being separate from. Where did that happen? What adaptation along the path of things, where did that come in? Now, some of us, probably most of us, have had 
the experience of holding an infant as they uh, come out of the womb or shortly thereafter, and they seem completely undifferentiated. I mean, they really don't know where their body stops and where the environment begins. And they're just sort of swimming in things. And you realize that that person has to differentiate. They have to learn in this, through socialization, they have to learn how they, to navigate this very complex social culture that we have. And that that requires differentiation and specialization within it. And so some parents say, well, how can I keep my children from differentiating if they can be so free as an infant? Why can't I just keep that freedom intact? But it's not like that. Biologically, we need to differentiate. Early on, you could see that somewhere, at some point, we needed to know the difference between the lion and the tree. And we needed to put distance between ourselves and the lion, and we needed to get up the tree to get out of the way. And so you get a sense that that sense of knowing self and other is very important at some p- critical point in the species, if the species is going to continue and, and, and survive. So we come through that evolutionary process as we are born and as we are learn, you know, the different individuations of life. And then something quite interesting happens, and I think Carol spoke about it very nicely last night, how these uh, sense impressions that we hold in memory start carrying a personal relationship because of that memory. So we have a set of experiences that we hold within our memory, and each memory, instead of it just being a memory of something, it has a personal history associated with that memory, a storyline that goes along with it. And so we start seeing, perceiving through the memory not just through the memory, because that would just be having seen it before and what it looks like in perspective, but also through this experience of I. And when that happens, the I, the sense of I, is a pullback, is a reflective glance, is a consideration of what we're seeing. Right? And you notice the sense of I, this subjective experience of I that we can immediately access, has a ponderance to it. It has a a kind of a consideration to it. It's not immediate with life. It's kind of a reflection on life. And because of that, there's a gap between life as it's arising and my consideration of what is necessary in the moment. And so that pause, that gap, um, allows for a lot of history to come in between myself and life. Because as I see life, I also see, having seen life as it's arising, I see the memory of similar situations as they arose and the history of me within those same situations. And there's a whole psychological profile that arises within that simple gap, reflective gap that 
occurs moment after moment. And that gap allows us to make sure that this moment is safe enough to enter. And there's a moment of consideration where we take something in and from our memory we uh, assess whether there's safety, whether we can relax in this moment, or whether, because of similar moments, we have to be anxious or fearful, or remembering what you did to me the last time we were together, or whatever. And so that allows us to embody a sense of a conceptual sense of what life is and whether it's safe. And again, in a socially complex arena like ours, and given the evolution of our species through whatever turbulent history it has come, including the plains of Serengeti, that was probably very useful, very helpful to have that. Now, however, we see lions where there aren't any. And it's around the protection of this sense of I that we're now creating this gap and reflective distance to life. How can I protect myself? Now something very interesting happened at that moment 3.8 billion years ago. Life was undifferentiated. Awareness, consciousness took form. And when consciousness took form, you might say that there was a complete union of the organism and God, just because of a lack of a better word. Or you could say there was undifferentiated or differentiated oneness, individuated oneness, where side by side, the organism did whatever it needed to do, moved however it needed to move, within the complete certainty and safety, not of reflective certainty and safety, but of, again, for lack of a better word, just the faith of being held. When we developed the capacity for subjective experience, the common denominator of life became secondary. Because, remember, 3.8 years, million years ago, life, awareness, consciousness, joined form once. And all of the different differentiations from then, from then until now, and all the adaptations and all of the evolution all of that remains under that single consciousness that has not multiplied or divided. The species has, but that which entered life, which entered form in that one moment has not differentiated, has remained the same, has not even ad adapted, has not evolved. It remains exactly the same as it was 3.8 billion years ago when it entered form for the first time. And that is the common consciousness of all things. 
Now, the denominator of life holds that common consciousness. The numerator of life holds the specialization, the individualization, the differentiation, the appearances. And you can see the problem is that the once that was a whole number where the species, where the organism and the consciousness were undivided. Now, since we have the ability for subjective conceptualization of self, there's a fraction line that comes across, dividing the numerator from the denominator. Because the sense in, of you and I is created from and further uh, invests in the t not the, what we have in common, but our differences, our differentiation, the differences, so that we can compare and contrast and compete. And, and so it's the numerator, the adopt, adaptive numerator, the evolutionary factor, the appearance changes where we rest our identity. And we forget about the denominator. What good is the denominator to us? I'm out to get this job before he or she does. And that, so, so the investment is in the appearance of life, not in what we have in common with all of life. And that fraction bar that separates the numerator from the denominator is created because we, have, we don't want anything to do with the denominator. The denominator takes our individuation away. We want to accentuate our individual difference, our individualization. We want to know how we stand apart from. And so we invest in that aspect of the fraction. And we don't really care about being, having anything in common with anyone. Which is the real purpose of metta, is to show us the denominator. The point of metta is that we get, to sh shows us that we get lost in the numerator of the label we call friend or enemy or benefactor or I don't know you so you're not worth knowing, whatever label. That's the, that's the numerator, right? And what metta is attempting to do is to show you what opens up when we meet in the denominator, when we can see what we, where we, sh what we share together. And then you notice that when we come to that place where we're actually meeting what we, within what we share together, love is a given. It's not an induced factor. It's not something I have to try to do. It's a natural expression of life lived from the denominator. And that's the point of metta, is to show us what we all have equally available to us if we choose to look. But most of us don't choose to look. And the reason, again, that we don't choose to look is that it's too threatening to us. We have made the denominator a lion. And it scares us. The infinite scares us. That which does not change 
that cannot adapt, which has always been, scares us. And so we create a resistance. And that's the bar of the fraction. And live in a dimension of the top half. And that dimension is defined very differently than the bottom half dimension. And the, and the life lived in this virtual world, because the numerator really is a virtual world of thought and ideas and concepts and reflections and considerations and ambitions and all. It's a virtual world. It's a tranced. It's a world of trance-induced thought. And the strategies and the uh, laws of the numerator are uh, very, they, we take them very serious and very real. And the, and the need to exert will and influence and power and control are all numerator factors because those are further, those are factors that further our differentiation, that further our uniqueness, that make me top dog. Are you following this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> see, we're just looking at the problem here from a different point of view. It can be very helpful because you see at the same time we're saying all this, how close the denominator is. It's not very far away. How, can, how far away could, a fraction, could the top, bottom part of a fraction be? And we think, you know, oh, but when you live just in the numerator, you have to have such a resistance to the denominator because the only reason we aren't being flooded by the denominator is because we're afraid of it. We, are, we have a level of resistance in ourselves to seeing ourselves as being connected because it takes our power away. It takes the dimension, all the things that we've invested in, in the numerator life, it's taken away when we start moving into the denominator's reality. It takes, it, it's like we're bled dry. And we have such focus and purpose and meaning in the, numer in the, denom in the numerator. In fact, life is meaningful. Because I can be productive. I can be useful. I can, you know, in, in my family's, you know, I can just list the things, right? And it requires me to be productive. In fact, one of the reasons that meditation seems so difficult is that I'm not being productive. I'm not numerating myself. <laughs> right? We're not, we're not, we're, we're when we sit, we are willing to be undifferentiated. We're, so who wants that? Unless I'm going somewhere, you see. Now, if I can take this practice called meditation and I can think I'm going somewhere with it, then I can stay in the numerator even though I'm, 
not being differentiated in it because I'll get something special out of it called enlightenment or whatever. And I can use that prize to further proclaim myself. And if I have to go through a little non-differentiation, well, I'll recover. <laughs> what an interesting life we live, my friends. You see, it took, we, consciousness took birth once and holds all things within that same consciousness. And you can feel the salvation of all problems, of all species, especially the human one. If we could just bear witness to that fact, we, there is essentially nothing in life that wouldn't be resolved problematically because all problems only arise in the numerator, not the denominator. There are no problems in the denominator. And we carry the seeds of that, not just the seeds of it, we carry, we're in, we're in the middle of it at all times. We couldn't possibly have left it couldn't possibly have left it. We have barricaded ourselves behind fence after fence after fence, each time getting more narrowly defined within each fence post, behind each fence post, and because the more definition we have, the more we hurt, we are also suffering more because of it. So as we struggle for more uniqueness, to be better, to not to be ordinary. For God's sake, not the ordinary. And the ordinary, what does that hold for us? That sounds too much like the denominator. Let me invest in my appearance. And that's the reason that appearance holds such a high regard for us. How can I improve my appearance? Because as a species, we're very similar to one another. So we have to do something for our appearance to shine bright on them. And it's also where we like to arrest other people's attention on us. Because if they go too deep, if intimacy becomes too steady, they're going to see my emptiness, which is the common denominator we share. And they'll freak out and I'll freak out. <laughs> So look at me, but let's stop skin deep. I want you to look, but I don't want you to look further than the skin. Isn't that interesting? My God. You see, and that's why we keep ourselves going, because the numerator requires us to be in constant movement. Because if you stop suddenly, the top part of the fraction, the differentiation, becomes blurred. It doesn't become pronounced. 
Because in stopping, there's no edge. There's no um, definition. And suddenly I begin to sink into the denominator, also called stillness. Now, for the first 3.7999999999 billion years, be a numerator. You're like a little tribe. You're not causing that much difficulty, throwing spears at one another. Okay? But now we've grown to a threshold in which our numerators are not just affecting our species universally, but also other species universally and the planet. Now we can no longer afford to invest in that sense of differentiation. The life cannot tolerate or hold or sustain our individuations. And so we're called upon to take responsibility now. It's like the cold slap of reality has hit us. And we're asked now to address the problem. And this is the problem. What does it mean that we need to do when we already are what we're trying to access? It means that we need to drop the resistance, the bar, between the two fractions. We need to stop resisting what we are carrying with us at all times, at all places. And the meditation instruction is really meant for that purpose and that purpose only. What have you heard? You haven't heard for you to keep in movement stay differentiated, compare and contrast and opinionate yourself, judge yourself at all times, have you? You haven't heard that because that's what we've come from. That's the life we've been living. That's the turbulence that has kept us in the state and condition of the world that is now exists. We say just the opposite. Don't judge. Be quiet. Be still. Just allow what it is that's there to be there. Because then we began to sink into a deeper, more profound level and dimension that we all share. We don't just share it between and among ourselves. We share it with all beings. We share it with plant and animal alike. In fact, it's total oneness. And, but we can use the meditation for further differentiation. We can use it to turn away from, to increase a sense of resistance to, to avoid or deny what is arising. We don't know what's happening when you shut your eyes. We can give you the instruction, but we don't know what's happening in there. And after seeing people over decades, sometimes you wonder what they've been doing. <laughs> 
But the encouragement, the encouragement is to let ourselves fall into stillness, to fall into quietude. You know, it's interesting. A perfect example of numerator and denominator was I turned on the news about a month ago, maybe two months ago, and ABC News was interviewing Eckhart Tolle. Uh, maybe some of you saw it. I heard that, you know how they give you a, war a forewarning of what's coming up? They said, so uh, we'll be at interviewing Eckhart Tolle, the renowned blah, blah, blah. I thought, whoa, I'm staying tuned for that. I want to see that. So at the very end of the program, you know, he gets all of five minutes or maybe not even that much. But it was a very revealing interview. So this ABC commentator says, um, well, people are really getting to know you as sort of the prophet that uh, Oprah has uh, been presenting to the world and your book, you know, sold millions. And how do you, how do you, that must make you feel very proud. <laughs> <laughs> And he says, no, you know. <laughs> and the, the, the commentator couldn't ruffle him. And finally, the commentator got to the point where he didn't know, he couldn't figure him out. So he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, why you're so calm all the time. He says, <laughs> he, he says what if, if I stuck you in a room and shut the door, wouldn't that bother you? <laughs> And Eckhart said, no, no, I'd be very happy there. <laughs> there it was. Numerator talking to denominator. Yeah, it's a different world. The worlds don't meet. You know, at least the numerator doesn't meet the denominator. He was very inclusive, very friendly, very warm-hearted, very embracing of the He wasn't ridiculing him. The, Eckhart wasn't ridiculing the company. But you could feel that this was like two worlds, two dimensions. We know those dimensions in ourselves, don't we? I wonder which one's going to win out. Because not only your life, but all of our lives depend upon your journey. It is so, my friends. And so we are learning, and I know it's difficult. It's not easy to journey across that fraction line, especially after the millennium of time that we have spent nurturing just one facet of that fraction. But with infinite patience, the denominator waits for us. Infinite patience. It hasn't moved. It hasn't altered itself one iota, nor could it, since time immemorial. How can stillness change? It's always still. But what happens? when we concede the point, when we release the tension of our life, which is the pain that has taken us this far into our journey. For without that pain, there's very little likelihood that any of us would be together here and now. 
It's our pain. It's that fractional line that has allowed us to join together, to meet, and to talk about how we can live without suffering. And so we're on the journey, but we begin to realize that not to suffer means changing, changing from one aspect to another. Something else must arise up. We must embrace something that we have been denying in ourselves. We must be willing to fully join, which up to this point we have turned away from. Never think for one moment that you have been left out of your denominator. Never question that. And the mind will try to convince you otherwise. It will give you every reason to believe that you're as isolated and lonely and as troubled as you think you are. And we have to have the courage to hold every facet of whatever the numerator can bring with the stillness of the denominator. Because if we struggle, we are just laterally moving across the same dimension of the fraction with more need to get out of, to get away from, to further differentiate, to escape from. Those are the messages, those are the rules, those are the laws by which the denominator maintains itself. So if we're serious about this, we have to apply different rules entirely to the game. If we want to know that which is timeless, which is infinite. Which holds all things. But is defined by none. Then we must allow ourselves to be as quiet as we are. Sometimes when someone is dying and they're on their deathbed. And I can see that differentiation is over for them. And they can often see that as well. That much of the skills, their usefulness, all the things that they ple or pleased and appreciated about themselves in terms of their differentiation now is all melding back in. They realize they can't take that differentiation with them. That they're not going to be able to sneak out of their life with their appearances intact. And because of the readiness that death forces upon us, and it plays hardball, sometimes a person is ready enough to hear something that you would think that we could have heard long, long ago. What is it 
that is undiminished in you, that you cannot lose, that does not change. Go to that which does not die. And you can see sometimes, rarely in fact, but some people will make that journey because they have no other options left but to make that journey. Now, years before that fact hopefully happens to us, we are called upon to make that journey. Now, we can use our meditation for psychological improvement and all of the different things. There's nothing wrong with that. And it will make your life better and more adaptable. It'll make it more pleasant. But it will not show you the denominator. And the salvation of the world literally depends upon that. When Christ said he was in the world, but not of the world. He then rode his individuation as an individual person and walked into the hands of God. Because once we are firmly based in the denominator, you see the trance of the other dimension. And you can't believe the suffering you see. The heart just pours forth in genuine compassion for the blinded suffering. We don't even know that we're creating it ourselves. It's like blind denial. And you want to shout it from the rooftops, hey, look, there's a way out of this. It's time. Each of us can do this. All we have to do is relax. All we have to do is release the tension around our being special come back into our ordinariness and see the extraordinariness that the ordinariness contains. Come back to what we have in common, not to what our differences show or reveal. And it's right here, as close to us as the air we breathe. And so at any moment, we can go back 3.8 billion years and wipe the slate clean. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two?
So as you sit, where does your attention go? To the noise? Or that which holds the noise, that even allows the noise to be known? Or does it go to what you see? Or the capacity to see? Because that which holds the capacity to see is the denominator. That which unites, which holds all things. We're so used to listening to just the noise that we miss everything that surrounds it, that reveals it, that allows it to be known. And you know how you know you're moving in the right direction? Because you'll enjoy yourself. Be it, let it be so.